Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable in partnership with the LA Times studio that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We are virtually thrilled to be here virtually at the Texas Tribune 2020 Festival, one of the great events of the year. We were here last year as a fledgling podcast, and we return with a fantastic episode with phenomenal guests. Almost everyone who is paying attention is now acutely aware of the welter of challenges and obstacles to full voter participation in the upcoming election, including COVID and aggravated immeasurably by the leading strategy of the president's re-election efforts, which is to try to suppress the vote and sow chaos at every turn. But there's considerably less awareness of the concrete and massive effort, and it is truly massive, that Democrats and voter protection groups are using to fight back in the courts, in Congress, and in public opinion. That's what we're going to cover today, along with a strategy discussion to talk through the immediate challenges, the most important ones, the ones that are too difficult to pour resources into, all the considerations that are guiding the efforts of the combatants in the field, or I should say fields, because the battles are being waged in many venues. And to do it, we have, without exaggeration, the complete dream team of leaders who are taking the fight to Team Trump, and it's fairly formidable lineup. And they are Mark Elias, having worked with him on a national presidential campaign, I'm going to go ahead and revise his official biography from one of the leading recount and post-election attorneys in the country, to the leading recount and post-election attorney in the country. Previously, he acted as general counsel of the Kamala Harris 2020 presidential campaign, as well as Senator Amy Klobuchar's 2020 presidential campaign, and before that, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. Welcome, Mark Elias. Thank you. Senator Amy Klobuchar was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2006 and ran as a Democratic candidate for president in 2020. She's the ranking member of the Rules Committee, which has jurisdiction over the administration of federal elections and matters related to good governance, and serves on a number of other committees, including judiciary. Senator Klobuchar, thank you very much for being on Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. And finally, Congresswoman Katie Porter who's represented California's 45th Congressional District since 2019. She's a member of the House Financial Services Committee and the Oversight and Reform Committee. Previously, Porter served, and I can attest to this personally, as a revered law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and as a consumer and bankruptcy attorney for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau the World Bank, the Federal Judicial Center, and the Uniform Law Commission. Welcome to Talking Feds, Congresswoman Porter. Thank you. All right, let's jump in. So I'd really like to take advantage of this remarkable assembly to have a full four-way dynamic discussion, but I want to begin with just briefly identifying the state of play across the main playing field. So beginning with you, Mark, you and your team have already filed more voting rights cases in 2020 then 2015 to 2018 combined. You're in 17 different states. I know it's probably not easy, but can you give a sort of quick overview where we're on offense, where we're on defense, and just touch on the Elias Four pillars, which everyone has been committing to heart? Thank you so much for having me. And I think it's probably fair to say that there's been more voting rights litigation in this election cycle than not just 2018 and 2016 cycles, but you probably keep going back to 14 and add that and 12 and 10. I mean, we've seen an absolute flood and the reasons are threefold. Number one, because there has been a assault on voting by Republican legislatures throughout the country. Number two, because of COVID. And number three, because the president is doing everything he can to undermine confidence in the voting system. In January, I wrote an article about the epidemic of uncounted ballots that face us in every election, not anticipating what we would see with COVID. And then in March, I, I wrote an article identifying four criteria that states really need to adopt in order to have fair voting when people want to vote by mail. And they're called the got to be known as the four pillars, which is now how they're referred to in many court cases. And they are, number one, making 
making sure that postage is free or prepaid. It turns out that requiring voters to pay for postage is both a barrier for voters on socioeconomic grounds, but also younger voters. Younger voters face real barriers. Yeah. Where's the stamp? Yeah, forget it. Yeah. Number two is ensuring that ballots that are postmarked by election day count, even if they're received a few days later. And this is particularly important given the slowdown of the postal service we've we've seen. The third is making sure that where states use signature matching as a form of verification, that we make sure that those rules are applied fairly and don't disenfranchise voters and the voters are given an opportunity to cure. And then finally, that third-party organizations are able to collect and return sealed voted ballots. This is very important on, for example, Native American reservations where there's no on-reservation mail service. And so those are the four pillars. We've been litigating these, as you say, throughout the country. We're also facing an onslaught of cases that there are. Republican Party is bringing. If you had asked me for my voter suppression bingo card for 2020, it would not have had it around drop boxes, but the Republicans are suing to block drop boxes throughout the country. So there's a lot going on. What's the rough offense versus defense ratio of your work right now? good question. So I would say earlier in the summer, it was predominantly offense, and now it is much more mixed. We've seen in recent days, the RNC and the Trump campaign bring litigation in Nevada, in Iowa. In Iowa, they want to throw out people who had the audacity to return pre-populated voter registration forms. These are not ballots. These are just the, right. not voter registration. These are the absentee ballot application forms. They've sued Pennsylvania. They've sued New Jersey. They've sued very recently, in the last few days, they sued Montana to try to make voting harder there. So I would say right Right now, we're seeing a real surge of Republican lawsuits. Got it. And I just wanted to quickly mention that Mark maintains and has founded Democracy Docket, where this kind of alarming article about uncounted ballots is, and also the senator has contributed an important piece there that I was reading in preparation. In fact, maybe I can move now to you, Senator, to just give a sense of the overall and overarching efforts on the legislative front. There were already troubles, as Mark and you have mentioned. Before, we had an antiquated system with a lot of breaks in the joints before COVID and then before the overlay of the reflexive effort by Republican legislatures to fight anything. So I think you've tried mightily to give legislative fixes and have introduced three pieces of major legislation. Can you just give us the summary of the chief issues that the legislations are addressed to and and their prospects for going forward? Okay, so I, I look at this back before the pandemic. We already knew there were many bad things going on. There was the foreign interference, the Russian interference, which the Trump intelligence people have full-blown said has happened and said it in briefings, but said it publicly that they've been emboldened. And we know just recently we've heard reports are doing it again. So there was a whole grouping of things we were working on uh, before the pandemic on backup paper ballots. And that was this election security bill that James Langford and I introduced. Bipartisan, Lindsey Graham was on it and a number of other Republicans, as well as Kamala was on it. Mark Warner, and we got blocked. Roy Blunt is a friend, had agreed to do a hearing, and (laughs) we were ready to go. And the White House literally made calls to Republican senators. That is a true story. No one has denied it to stop it from going forward. Would have been a few years ago when we first brought it out. So we would have done a lot of work for states like New Jersey that have no backup paper belt. So they already had this in mind, even pre-virus, that this is how they had to win. Exactly. And I will say now we're going to get more paper ballots, not of our own liking. Why? But we are. Okay. the second thing is the work Mark's been doing for so long on voter suppression and just the Voting Rights Act and all of those things with the Supreme Court decision in Shelby and everything we've seen since then. So all of that. Mark has done incredible work litigating this. So a lot of that stuff, there's been some good results that he has gotten extraordinary results in the courts. And then we also have, of course, legislation that has gone nowhere because McConnell has blocked it to fix it. The third piece is where we are now. And that's just all these constellation of bills that are focused on funding. And some of it's related to pre-pandemic, but a lot of it's it's the disaster we're in now. And that really gets at the, if we were on a Zoom screen right now, because I do so many of these, the split screen of on one side, you see those voters in Milwaukee in garbage bags and homemade masks in the rain, standing in line to vote, 70 of them getting coronavirus. On the other split screen, you see Donald Trump voting in the luxury of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in his slippers. 
in his absentee ballot. Maybe you could have a triptych with Mitch McConnell, like, you know. Right. right. And so what we need for that is change of rules, some of which have been done voluntarily by states, including Republican governors all over the country. That's why Donald Trump is such an outlayer, along with McConnell. There have been a number of state efforts. Some of it come about because of Mark's work and lawsuits. Some of it comes about because legislators change to make it easier. But we still have significant problems because the average of people voting by mail is 25% in past federal elections. And now we're going to 60, 70%. We hope. The best example is that 95% of the people in the Maryland Republican primary voted by mail, despite Donald Trump saying the only place they should vote by mail is Florida. Another story for another day. So all of the work now is on trying to get funding, which we can do now, is in Congress is HEROES Act funding. There's $3.6 trillion in there. We were able to get and negotiate $400 million in the first CARES Act for voting, but we want to get the $3.6 billion, I should say $3.6 billion in this bill. And so we are trying to get some big amount of money out of the Senate. And Blunt and I have been working on that, but to do that, you need a bill and a vehicle. And last thing, of course, which I'm sure Katie will talk about after her extraordinary cross-examination of the Inspector General of the Post Service, is just all mess there, the delay of ballots and, and things like that. But I can't stress enough that this HEROES Act that they passed in the House, getting the funding for both the post office and voting would be a big help. And the Republican governors and secretaries of state want it. This is not a partisan issue. No one wants to put voters in the hospital. They would rather put ballots in the mailbox. Well said. And that is a segue to what I wanted to ask Congresswoman Porter about, because I think the biggest change that we're all aware of this cycle is as massive a possible exercise of advanced voting, which means at least in large part, the mail will get back to the drop boxes, but which means in large part, the USPS and the news there with another inexperienced Trump loyalist controlling the strings has been pretty abhorrent. Congresswoman, you've been in the in the center there and not just with the inspector general, with the director as well, Mr. DeJoy. I wonder what the basic game plan is now to try to neutralize USPS failings and It's all within the executive branch where we've learned in the last three and a half years, there's total willingness to just close ranks and not worry about the law. What are you trying to do to pierce those ranks and what are the prospects? Well, there are several key takeaways from when Postmaster DeJoy appeared before the House Oversight Committee. One of them is that he would only commit to trying not to make things worse than he already has. At no time were any of us able to get him to commit to reversing and improving and undoing the damage that he's done, which is substantial. There's a meaningful delay in mail delivery around the country. And so we're hearing stories like doctors telling people not to ask for prescriptions by mail because they can't promise they'll get there. That's a big problem. The second problem is one of accountability. I was the very last questioner on the most junior member of the House Oversight Committee, and he and Postmaster General DeJoy had gone to the Senate and filibustered and people had tried to hold him accountable. He came to the House, and one of his big lines was, I'm not responsible for these changes. These changes were in the works. You know, they were pre-planned. Chip off the old block there, huh? Not responsible, right? Exactly. But after saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, I actually asked him, well, then who was it? And his answer was so important. He said, I don't know, which could mean only one of two things and neither of them is good. He either made the changes and is denying that to the committee and being less than truthful, to put it gently, or he's in charge of an agency in which somebody's making tremendous operational changes and he has no idea who it is or on what authority or basis they're doing it. Neither of those is good. So that's going to put more pressure on people's confidence in this election when we have problems with the post office layered on top. Because I think early in this pandemic, one of the you know, one things we heard was, well, we can solve a lot of these problems by voting by mail. And I think now people have concerns about that. So I think it's really important to think about the, it's not just vote in person day of or vote by mail. There's actually a spectrum of different voting options that we use here in Orange County. And I think there are things that people around the country could take from that. And I think one thing important to note is our bill, the one that I authored that got in the House bill with Ron Wyden, 
the money goes to all that. It goes to training the poll workers for the day of a new generation. And it also goes to keeping polling places open early because you're still going to have at least, I mean, we don't know the numbers. Maybe Mark can have some estimates based on the primaries. You're going to have a whole lot of people that are going to be voting safely early because you have less people congregating and the day up. And we want to make that have them have the protective equipment at the polling places and everything else we need to do. And that has to be an option. Yeah. And this is a cross-cutting theme that I think we're learning more and more. There's fecklessness and sometimes even political sinister conduct at the very top with Trump-installed leaders. But there's a whole series of sort of middle management that are deploying politically partisan efforts. And it's just very hard even to learn about, much less remedy. The senator, by the way, if I haven't mentioned, thank you so much for being with us, has to leave fairly soon. Let's talk drop boxes and how big a part they are of the possible solution. How do they work? What do they cost? Is that what the $3.6 billion would go to in large part? How big an effort is it? Senator, can I start with you? Yeah, the $3.6 billion can be used for a lot of different things, including that. And now we're talking here about special boxes for people to drop their ballots off on. Usually they're going to be at the early balloting places where people are showing up to vote in person, but they can be other places. And I think it depends on the state. I thought they could be sort of around the city, almost like a library drop-off thing. Exactly. And you would like to have as many as possible. And there's some states that have put in some pretty severe limits. I was just talking to Sherrod Brown about, I think it's Ohio has one per county or something like that. And then some states have none at all. And I think Mark is probably involved in litigation on that front. And then that is different, of course, than the post office boxes, right, that we've been hearing about. They've been pulling up blue post office boxes, which is equally bad. But this is a different issue. This is just simply for your ballot. And you want that as kind of a hybrid option where you get your ballot by mail, but then you can drop it off there or at the voting place. And then I think people are less worried about it getting slowed down or not delivered in the mail. And the the rules vary on if it has to be postmarked or not. And so it's really nice to know it's okay. You can put it in that ballot box and it works. Actually, let's move right to this postmark point. That's one of the four pillars. What kind of legal arguments are you trying to marshal to say, you know, I know the right to vote is surprisingly inchoate in the Constitution. What are the legal basic arguments to you, Congresswoman, that say we have a right to have votes counted that are postmarked by the election date, even if they're not received until after. And that's something that many states and Republican legislatures are trying very hard to oppose. No, we definitely have a huge variety of approaches in our state law. And I think that's one of the problems. We have to make sure that we're also telling people specifically in their area what the situation is. And because we have so much variety, because the Voting Rights Act and some of those protections are not as robust as they used to be in each different state, even county to county within a state, people are having very different experiences. This is kind of a depressing podcast, no offense, (laughs) as we've talked about it so far. And I just want to tell people a story about Orange County, California. This is a deeply historically Republican area. Um, Our registrar of voters is amazing. And so he has prepared an entire pandemic report talking about how he has purchased extra equipment. He's purchased extra paper in anticipation of having to print more ballots. The drop boxes that he's put in place, they were there in our primary back in early March. He's expanding the number. It's actually an incredible mobilization effort to increase access to the ballot box. But you only need to go one county or one state over to see completely a different approach. And I think that's one of the things that Mark you know, is having to deal with is he's having to sue not just state by state, but in some case, county by county. And yet this is a federal right. Yeah, well, and let's talk about that. And by the way, this is supposed to be the upbeat podcast. All the terrible news we've all heard, that's supposed to be backdrop to this good news of everything that's happening. But you've described kind of an education effort, Congresswoman Porter. Is there a correlative litigation effort and what would it be? An equal protection, Bush v. Gore kind of claim? How do you try to say that there's a legal right to have your vote counted even if state law doesn't provide for it? 
Yeah, so a few things. First, on the Dropbox front, we are seeing a concerted effort by Republican elected officials in the Republican Party to attack Dropboxes. So Senator Klobuchar is correct that in Ohio, the Secretary of State passed guidance that said that counties can only have one Dropbox per county. In Iowa, we saw the Secretary of State recently put out guidance limiting the number of Dropboxes that you can have there. We saw the Republican Attorney General and Governor in New Hampshire limit, put out guidance limiting the number of Dropboxes. Missouri actually bought $80,000 worth of Dropboxes, and now the Republicans have said that it's illegal to deploy them. So we're seeing state after state an attack on what is really one of the most convenient ways for people to have a high level of confidence that their ballot is returned and counted. And it's something that has never been a partisan or frankly, even a controversial issue in the past. I think the most controversy about Dropboxes, Congresswoman was actually in California just making sure there were enough of them because they were so popular. There's never been a, there's never been a suggestion there should be fewer of them. On the postmark buy and the and the theories of the lawsuit, the arguments that we're making are really straightforward. First is that the voter at the point that they've delivered their ballot into the mails has done everything they can do. And they shouldn't be disenfranchised because DeJoy has decided to pull out sorting equipment. So rather than taking five days, it takes seven days, or rather than seven days, it takes 15 days. So number one is the idea is that if the voter has completed their last act of voting, the ballot should count. The second is that for most of these states, the difference between an election day cutoff or a cutoff that is three or seven days later is really no burden. I mean, the fact is the states, the states already have the workers who are there who are counting these ballots anyway after. For the election. So it's not like it's causing them to move any deadlines or to expend any additional resources. So those are the arguments. I do want to give a shout out to Senator Klobuchar's bill, because I do think that there are now a number of different pieces of legislation that have been proposed, but it was really the Klobuchar bill that when I first started talking about the four pillars, what I would say to everyone is it's in the Klobuchar bill. And then it was like Stacey Abrams has endorsed it as well. And it, but, but really, a lot of what we see in the HEROES Act out of the House or some of the subsequent bills really, frankly, built on the core nucleus of what was in the senator's bill. So I, I, think, I think when we get to a new Congress where Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House, I think, uh, I think people would do well to sort of go back to that as, a, as the core nucleus. Now, Senator, I know you have to go. I just wanted to ask you before you leave if you wanted to talk to us just a couple minutes, kind of elaborate on the point you made in passing about the Russian disinformation that we're trying to somehow get our arms around. Yeah, I mean, it so couldn't be more timely because we just had the social media companies come out themselves and say that this is going on, disinformation campaigns involving themselves in all kinds of things involving voting. We know that in 2016 that they tried to break into every single state's voting systems, got as far as the voters' names and information in Illinois. And there is every single reason to think that they're going to brazenly do it again. And what there's a few things going on that's bothersome. The first I mentioned, we weren't able to pass our bill, which would have really gotten ahead of it with strong bipartisan support. So we are where we are with clearly more knowledge the states have than we had in 2016, clearly more sharing of information and things like that. But at the very time we're finding out this is going on again, the White House has announced that we're no longer going to have intelligence briefings from the director of intelligence. So a number of us have been pushing that in a big, big way because one of our problems from 2016, there wasn't enough information out there. And then the third thing is just going to be the two ways they do this. One is actual hacking in and the other is disinformation. I thought it was interesting that Facebook just announced that they weren't going to take new ads The last week. And I remember someone saying to me just today, well, what does that matter? And I said, well, because that's when they put all the dirty, horrible ads out <laughs> and you at least have a week running. Maybe, maybe you can get it off or you can respond to it as opposed to some of the horrific things going on in 2016. My favorite example, so many of them targeted at the African-American community was an ad that was not a paid ad, but went all over African-American Facebook pages. And it showed an African-American woman, an innocent who later called Senator Durbin's office and our office because the ad had been explained. They used her face. They put it on this image and it said, why wait in line to vote for Hillary? You can text your vote. Oh. And it gave a number. And untraceable, I'm sure. So that's why we have to push at the intelligence people. There are good people that work there. General Naxoni, there's many that are trying to protect us on that front. He's from Minnesota, so that's There fine. you go. 
So I think that there are people that we've got to work with and certainly the state election officials. And the last thing I just say, because Katie's right, it's not the easiest subject, but there is some really amazing things happening. The high voter turnout that we saw. My state always has the high voter turnout, not to compete, Katie, in the country. But that's with only 25% vote by mail. So we saw in our primary people voting. And yes, there's spoiled ballots. Yes, mistakes are made. Yes, there's bad things going on. But the enormous effort that's going on to educate people on how to do this is extraordinary. And I think that's actually something when you see Michelle Obama there with her vote necklace and you see the people that are struggling to understand all the complexity of their rules in every state online, that makes me excited. The fact that we're winning with sometimes Republican judges, right, Mark? It just shows it gives you some faith that democracy lives despite Donald Trump's efforts to kill it. Well, there's a parting line if ever I heard one. Safe travel, Senator, and thanks for being with us. Thank you, both of you heroes. Thank you. All right. I just and I just a quick postscript on what the senator said. Part of the whole dynamic, of course, that led to the pulling the plug on briefings was a politicized effort to, in relative terms, diminish the importance of the Russia disinformation and put it supposedly on a on a par, which it is not with China and Iran. Okay, with the the center's exit, I think it's a perfect time for us to do our sidebar, which Talking Feds listeners know we do most episodes and talk about some important legal concept read to us by a person well-known from other fields. And today that is John Sayles, the independent film director, screenwriter, editor, actor, and novelist who since the 1980s has been among the most prominent independent filmmakers in the U.S. And since we're in Texas, virtually should note that his movie Lone Star, which was filmed all over Texas, won Best Director and Best Screenplay at the Society of Texas Film Critics Awards in 1996. And he is going to explain what is a presidential pardon and how does it normally, emphasis on normally, work. John Sayles. What is a presidential pardon, and how does it normally work? Pardons are a feature of every evolved criminal justice system, a way of tempering justice with mercy. The Constitution grants the president near total authority to pardon anyone she or he wants, so pardons are inevitably subjective. But there is an extensive set of standards and procedures for pardons, administered within the Department of Justice and the White House, to ensure they are thoughtfully considered and granted through a consistent process. For starters, there is a pardon attorney within the Justice Department. She and her staff administer a set of detailed rules and regulations that pardon applicants are supposed to follow and those hoping for a pardon start the process with an application to her office. On receiving an application, the office of the pardon attorney investigates whether the applicant meets certain basic prerequisites. The FBI typically contributes by investigating whether the applicant has led a responsible and productive life post-conviction or release. In general, the applicant must demonstrate good conduct for a substantial period after conviction and while serving his sentence. For this reason, regulations require an applicant to wait to apply for a pardon until at least five years after conviction, though the department is empowered to waive this requirement. It is also considered critical for the applicant to accept responsibility and have sought to atone for his crimes. The pardon attorney will also solicit the views of justice system stakeholders, especially the prosecutors who convicted the applicant. Strong opposition from those quarters can scuttle a pardon, as happened in the case of convicted Israeli spy Jonathan Pollard, whose pardon applications the CIA and Defense Department fervently opposed. At the conclusion of the pardon attorney's investigation, the resulting information and the pardon attorney's recommendation are sent to the White House Counsel's Office. There, an assistant to the president examines it and passes it along with her own recommendation to the president who makes the final decision. These procedures have been more honored in the breach than in their observance in the most high-profile pardons and commutations granted by President Trump, such as those for Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Dinesh D'Souza, Louis Scooter Libby, and most recently Roger Stone. None of these men went through the normal prescribed process beginning with a pardon attorney, nor did their cases comport with substantive guidelines in federal law. For Talking Feds, 
I'm John Sales. Okay, thank you very much to John Sales, who is, in his many other accomplishments, the author of the recent novel, Yellow Earth, which you can find on Amazon. All right, so picking up the discussion, I wanted to ask both of you, things are enlarged, as Mark started out by saying, how, how new is the playbook, ours or the Republicans or the Democrats, relative to previous presidential campaigns? Are you fighting completely new theories and strategies, or is it just more of the same, but kind of everywhere? Well, it's a little of both. I mean, one of the things that I think has been underappreciated in some of the press coverage is that from 1982 until the present, or until very recently, I should say, the Republican National Committee was under a court order prohibition against engaging in voter suppression, ballot security, poll monitoring efforts. So that resulted from a horrifically racist effort that they ran in a gubernatorial election in 1981 in New Jersey, and they had been banned from doing this ever since. That has now lifted. And so we've seen the Republicans much more aggressive. They've said they're going to recruit 50,000 poll watchers to watch the polls. We know that they're not just going to be there watching. And we see that they are much more willing to be open about their antagonism to voting. This is not to say that the Republican Party in the past has not engaged in anti-voting behavior. It has. But you you couldn't imagine that even the party of George W. Bush announcing that the RNC would spend $20 million to fight voting rights in court. You, you couldn't imagine Mitt Romney in 2012 saying that people shouldn't vote or people shouldn't trust in the system. You, you couldn't imagine a John McCain supporting the kind of abuses at the Postal Service that we now see under this administration. So what's different this cycle is not so much the legal theories are different. It's just the scale and the scope of it is bigger because you have a president who is shameless and he has drained every last ounce of shame out of his party. And so they're willing to advocate for really, really voter suppressive and anti-voting laws and restrictions and positions in court in a way that the prior Republican nominees or Republican Party would have felt was just out of bounds, even if they even if they wanted that results. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd dynamic where there's the fig leaf sometime of preventing fraud, but really they just have to unabashedly support measures that are pretty indefensible. And I don't think they really try to defend. They just reflexively will go in and, and take the hit, the PR hit, to fight any kind of realization of the franchise. Look at the lawsuit that they filed in Pennsylvania. Yeah. They sought three things in Pennsylvania federal court. Number one, to ban drop boxes. Now, these drop boxes, as Congresswoman Porter knows, these are monitored, these are locked. There's no fraud issue there. The second thing they sought is to disqualify ballots when someone puts their absentee ballot inside the, the outer envelope and seals it, but forgets to put it inside that inner envelope and seal it, and they want those ballots not to count. Again, no, there's no reason to disenfranchise those voters other than for technicality. And then the third is they want poll watchers to be able to watch polls in counties that they don't live in. Now, that's a curious one. Why would they want to have poll watchers from a county other than where the poll watchers live? And the answer is, I assume, because they want to send people into places like Philadelphia to disrupt the polls, and they probably can't find Philadelphians who will sign up for that kind of behavior. So they want to bring people from outside of Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, choose your you know, Allegheny County, pick your pick where. And none of those are anti-fraud rationale. They're just trying to make voting harder. And an interesting result in Pittsburgh was something we could talk about more if we have time to abstain. And, you know, it's part of the whole state federal dynamic that is big here. And Congresswoman, what's the interplay here with Shelby County v. Holder and the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act? How is that contributing to what Mark was just talking about? Well, it leaves us in a position where we can't count on our Department of Justice to be doing any of this enforcement work. And one of the effects of that is to politicize it more, because you actually have sort of Democratic-leaning groups and Republican-leaning groups engaged in these court battles. And the right to vote should be something that the Department of Justice is safeguarding 
as a core element of justice. Congress has voted to pass H.R. 1, which contains elements of voter protection, as well as H.R. 4, the Voting Protection Rights Act. So we've done work to try to expand this. And I think we heard earlier Senator Klobuchar expressing frustration that even when you could get bipartisan agreement on some of these issues, we can't get them moving through the Senate. And there's a reason, by the way, H.R. 1 is H.R. 1. The incoming 2018 Congress really wanted to lead with that kind of effort. Um, We've averted a few times to just how big this is. When Mark and I, we worked together, but I was general counsel in Pennsylvania when he was general counsel to the whole campaign, and it has really expanded so much. But can either of you kind of give a sense of the sorts of resources in the field now? One thing is the straight out money that Mitch McConnell is a one-person blockade. But in terms of actual horsepower and people, et cetera, it's huge, right? And very impressive. The Dems don't lack for any kind of, of willing people power, correct? There's tons of enthusiasm, and that's great. I'm sure the congresswoman sees it every day when she's out and about in her seeing her constituents and others. There's lots of enthusiasm out there. I will say that there is an additional need this cycle for poll workers. So we talked about poll watchers, right? But the poll workers are the actual people who work the polls. And because of COVID in 2018, I think two-thirds of poll workers were over the age of 60 and 25% were over the age of 70. And so there's a shortage of poll workers. And there are organizations like Power the Polls and others who are really doing great work to recruit so that there'll be enough people working the polls. So when we talk about armies of people or volunteers alike, I always want to make sure to put in a plug for poll worker recruitment as well. Is that something Republican obstructionists can actually, they they can actually say, we don't want to change the poll workers. We like these retirees. Or if, as long as you recruit people, will any sensible state legislature put them in rather than risk the death of the traditional poll workers? Well, most of those decisions are made at the county level to hire people. And there's typically a timeline that they're trying to make sure that they have the staffing by. And there's a group that Mark mentioned one, another one is called Poll Heroes, that is recruiting high school and college students who, of course, are at lower rates of COVID. Many of them are in virtual school and are able to isolate to, in fact, be poll workers. I think it's really, really important for people who can do that. Many areas are facing shortages. The other thing to mention is I think we have to expand the idea of how we do voter protection. We sort of have this traditional concept of being in the boiler room on election night and people are calling in and they're reporting that lines are long or that voters are being turned away. That voter protection effort this year is probably going to be, and I'd be interested to hear what Mark thinks, but I would say a six to eight week effort. And it's going to begin four or five weeks before when the first ballots go out in some states by mail, and it's going to extend long after. So you're talking to someone here who did not win her election on election day. It took me 11 days to win my election because the registrar of voters was continuing to receive and count ballots that were postmarked on election day, but were delivered after. And so I think we need to both From a legal standpoint, for people who are volunteering to do voter protection work, we need more of a a longer term commitment. It's not just one day and done. And then the second piece of this is we really have to take control of the public discourse and tell people that an election whose results you have to wait for is an election where safety and security have been prioritized. So The fact that it took me 11 days gave me more confidence that the registrar was doing the work. Every day I could see that they had counted X ballots, they were updating things. So this idea that if you don't know by the second the polls close, that's not actually a great way to report election results. So we need to get people ready to expect that it may be a couple days in some areas, a couple weeks. I mean, there's this famous story about Kamala Harris when she first ran for attorney general in California. I believe it was the San Francisco Chronicle printed a headline, Cooley crushes Harris. 10, 12 days later, Harris had crushed Cooley. And so in California, we're used to this idea that there will be a delay as mail ballots trickle in. I think we need to share our experience, those of us in California or other states with vote by mail, that an election day result is not necessarily the goal. The goal is safe and secure elections. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. The fact is that when people say, well, how will it be for people to not know who won on election day? I always say, well, that's actually been true before this year. Like we have had absentee voting in many, in every state's had some form of absentee voting, but in many states, we already have been having absentee ballots that are counted after election day. It's just the national media hasn't focused on it as much because we haven't had someone in the White House who is as menacing or or making as many irresponsible statements about mail balloting. People didn't think twice the fact that whether it's Washington state or California or or Arizona, that that you would wouldn't count that you wouldn't have the final counts of ballots on election night. And I think we need to get out of a mindset that that's somehow unusual because actually it's not unusual. It's just everyone's more focused on it now than ever before. And as an overlay, and I won't ask you, Mark, to reveal your playbook. I mean, I know in 2004, in the wake of 2000, certainly the Carrie Edwards campaign put together a lot, but it's not like any old Congress race because there's I think, concrete worry that immediately at 8 p.m. on the 3rd, the public jockeying begins ferociously in the way the private jockeying already has started. And I, the concrete worry, I think, is that the president try, you know, depending on how things are, try to rest away and, and present as final if for some reason he's very modestly ahead on the 3rd a result that really, in fact, is still coming in, but try to somehow derogate as fraudulent. So I think that will be this incredible national scrum of PR plus law plus jockeying, et cetera. And I'm I'm sure that the very best people that both parties have to call on will be thinking about this. It can be so tortuous And then I'll just say one general point post-election, if maybe you want to comment on on either of you. There's this really tricky aspect, which is that so many things become irremediable after the election day itself. I mean, we think about the counting of votes in Florida, but of course, had the butterfly ballot been properly adjudicated, for those of you who remember that ancient history, a, a misdesigned ballot that made many votes that were clearly meant to be for Gore register for Pat Buchanan. Everything would have been different, but after the election is held, there's just there are certain kinds of eggs that can't be unscrambled, as it were. One of the things about voting by mail is that, or, or putting it in a drop box, is you are creating some of that paper trail. And so our ballots in Orange County, they're scanned, they're opened, that's recorded, the signature's verified, that's noted, they're scanned, they're processed, and they're stored. And so actually, I think part of the interest, the great public interest we see in wanting to vote by mail or wanting to use a drop box is not just COVID, although that is certainly a big factor. It's also that people want that paper trail. And so I think one of the hard things is, as you look at the national landscape, in some areas, the paper trail differs on depending on how you vote. And so in some states, if you would, know, a lot of people feel like if they vote in person, then their ballot can't be lost by the postal service or delayed or something like that. Our registrar of voters actually allows you to track your ballot online. Many states do this or some counties do this. It's very, very reassuring. You can see it be received. You can see the date it's open. You can see the date that it's counted. But that, I think, is a really important tool. Mark, you had a couple points to make. Yeah, I was just going to say a couple of quick things about this. The first is that the media actually plays an important role here because it's not enough. What I hear a lot from the media saying is that we're going to need to be patient. And that's great that the media feels it needs to be patient. I hope that it is. But it also needs to not allow Donald Trump to make false claims and then portray it as both sides, right? So one of the things is like if Donald Trump declares victory, the media needs to either not cover it or say he didn't win. But the problem is, if he is creating a false reality that the media knows is false, but it feels for 
whatever reason, like it needs to allow that to be covered equally with the truth, I think the truth may lose. So I think the media plays a big role in in how it decides it's going to cover post-election beyond just saying, be patient. The second thing I was just going to say to Congresswoman Porter's first point earlier is North Carolina today, mail ballots went out. So we now are officially in the voting season. Uh, North Carolina, first state in the country, the first mail ballot went out. So voting Voting Congresswoman has begun. And I, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. So, Mark, you can tell people that once they've done that, they're not supposed to then go vote on Election Day, also as the president has counseled. Yes, do not vote twice. <laughs> you know, it's really irresponsible what the president said. He puts people at risk for prosecution, frankly, because voting yeah, it's a crime. is a crime. It also, it also gums up the works. I also think he suggests that this is possible, where in systems like ours, that's validated. You you can't do that. So there are all kinds of checks to prevent that from happening. And that's actually one of the reasons that it can often take a while to count the mail ballot is because they're waiting to election day to make sure that you didn't vote on election day before they count your mail ballot. So the fact that he suggested that also undermines and suggests in people's head that this is, this is easy to do when in fact Secretaries of states have worked really hard to develop systems that prevent this. I want to just add one overlay to what Mark said, because I think the last two weeks have kind of told us we thought Florida was pretty bad and the rent a riot, et cetera. But I think if something like this happens, there's going to be an element of kind of civic violence and sort of marauding Trump supporters and the like that it's going to feel almost apocalyptic. It is all the more important that people understand in advance that this is just part of the process, part of the election, and pay no attention to those 50 people in trucks moving through Main Street. Just one more thing I wanted to touch on, and that, that's one of the Elias Four pillars, but it's this notion of third part, community collection, or what Democrats call community collection, what Republicans, I think this is what they call ballot harvesting. But it seems so important with the possibility of postal service failures to have verified, overseen, et cetera, but groups who can collect votes and take them to the actual precincts. That's something that's being fought very hard. Are those efforts prevailing by and large? Is it very much kind of county by county? What's going on with that effort and how's it looking? So California has really the model law here that allows third-party ballot collection with appropriate safeguards. And Republicans derisively refer to this ballot harvesting, but it really is an enfranchisement tool for populations that don't have reliable access to mail service, whether it's Native Americans on reservations or isolated rural populations. And I just want to sort of use one example that will help hopefully um, illustrate what's really going on here. We sued Arizona over their ban on ballot collection. They passed this ban after the Shelby County decision. They'd actually introduced the ban before the Shelby County decision, and it looked like it wasn't going to pre-clear, so they withdrew it. And then after Shelby County struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, they resubmitted it and it passed. The Ninth Circuit en banc in January ruled in our favor. And what they found is that the ban on ballot collection that was put in place was the product of intentional racial discrimination against Latinos. This wasn't happenstance. This was intentional. The Arizona legislature was concerned about growing Latino voting strength. And so it targeted a provision that allowed Latino voters to achieve equal opportunities to vote in Arizona. So when you strip away all of the nonsense ear from Republicans about this. This is really about empowering people to have a way to get ballots in to be counted in a way that that where they have confidence if they don't trust the mail service or they don't have access to the mail service, that this is an alternative. All right. We could go on for hours and I wish we could, but we're about out of time. We just have a couple minutes for our final feature here on Talking Feds, which is five words or uh, fewer in which we take a question normally from a listener, but I've called an audible and, and written it myself. And each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And here's the question. Your choice, if you had either, so it's kind of a two-part question to answer in five words or fewer, $5 billion or the ability to proclaim one proposition of law as if it's from the Supreme Court to just put it in, what would you do with that power? Would you go money or law? That won't count for the words. And then what would you do with the uh, power in particular? 
I would go law and I would overturn Citizens United. I would go law and I would, I'm going to have to do this in five words, voting is a fundamental right. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that everyone thinks of it that way and it's actually never been said? You have to cobble together different arguments. All right. I'm going to go money for this election and I'm going to use it all to fund drop boxes everywhere. Thank you very much to Mark Elias, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Congresswoman Katie Porter. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And a special Texas shout out to Evan Smith and the hardworking Flesh and Blood crew responsible for the ton of work involved in mounting a virtual convention. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, patreon.com slash TalkingFeds, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. We have just this week posted maybe the best thing we've ever done there, a triple series, three full episodes with former Solicitors General about that office, former White House counsels about that, and uh, and finally the Office of Legal Counsel with a real focus on the memo saying the president can't be indicted really the best way I can think of to get an introduction, not just to the offices, but the institutional considerations and the kind of nuances of practice that guide what they do week in, week out. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to the great director, actor, writer John Sales for schooling us on presidential pardons. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.